turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We'll finally finish the 11th chapter. It's a long chapter. We took some time for other things. Uh, our Revelation 3 study uh, early in the uh, year, and hard to believe uh, our first month is over. Actually, it was over last week. Was, uh, last week was the 1st of February. By the way, one thing to pray for as well. Today, two months from today will be Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday this year is early in the year. It's April the 5th, so it's early in the year. Be praying already uh, for resurrect, you know, if you're offended by the word Easter, I'm sorry. But anyway, uh, Resurrection Sunday, I know some Christians get really, really, uh, can't say that word, that's not what it is, but I, I get it. Uh, but uh, Resurrection Sunday, we want to be praying already. You know, invite your coworkers, invite your friends to come. We'll find room for them somehow. Uh, and we really want to see God speak. It's one of those times that people will come out that they won't come out any other time of year. So uh, invite them out, and, and I guarantee God will speak. It's a, it's a fascinating year to me. Uh, I look at the things of both uh, the, the Hebrew side of things as well as the scriptures and, and we are on, when I mentioned we're on a Gregorian calendar and if, this year April the 1st is a Wednesday well of our Wednesday service the next day is Passover begins the next day is preparation day the next day is the Sabbath and a blood red moon will rise that night over all of North America and most of South America and then the next day will be Easter Sunday and uh, you know God actually controls all of those things you realize that right? So these things are not accidental, and we want to see God do a great work. But uh, turn with me to Luke 11. If you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. If anyone doesn't have a Bible, let us know. Uh, but we're going to be picking up with verse 37. A few more verses to read than normal. We'll read verses 37 through 54. 37 to 54, uh, lengthy text, but Jesus takes, all of this takes place in a single setting. So we want to kind of look at it. Uh, in its entirety. Starting with verse 37, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward parts are full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather, give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, you are like the graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers. Jesus said, Oh, now you're going to bring up your own name? I'm going to speak directly to you. Woe to you, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and the, your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel, 
the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entered in, you hindered. Or you were, yeah, you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him, and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. Father, we ask again, your spirit would speak. These are the words of your only begotten son, so powerful, Lord, but we don't want them to be words for an ancient time, but words for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word today, Righteous or Religious? Righteous or Religious? In the late 90s and through 2002, uh, for six years, me and my wife, we lived in North Carolina. So most of you probably know that. And we both at that time, we worked in downtown Charlotte, uh, my wife, wife worked in human resources for a computer and software services company. I worked at a different company two buildings away. And we loved to meet for lunch. I mean, like meeting people for lunch. It's, it's nice, middle of the day, breaks up the day. You kind of forget about all the things you were looking at, spreadsheets or whatever else. You know, just kind of get away. And we would meet at lunch uh, in the middle of the day because we were only two buildings apart. And uh, we'd swap stories of how our day was going. Some days, and this was long before that parody, The Office, ever came out. Remember that show? You know that show? And long before that parody came out, uh, we would laugh or cringe at things that we saw in The Office that day, right? You can, you can relate. You know, you're not going to believe what happened today. You know, that kind of thing. We had, uh, these, were, these were those just normal days at The Office. And we had come to Christ uh, back in 1995. We were living down in Fort Lauderdale, and we had come to Christ there. But those five to six years in North Carolina, uh, the Lord had given us a lot of open doors. We were able to build relationships with other you know, young people and other people that we just got had given us those opportunities to invite people to church and just be a light and a witness to those that we work with. But one particular day, my wife tells me, I can't remember if it was at lunch or if it was the end of the day, but at one of these days we were just talking, and she says, you're not going to believe this. Don't you love when a sentence believes you're not going to... A sentence begins with, you're not going to believe this. You know, like, what is coming? And she proceeds to tell me that this one guy in her company, uh, or the company she worked at, I had met him a few times, so I knew who he was, very, very quiet, mild-mannered guy. Super quiet, slightly built guy, just real quiet. You would never, you know, didn't even say much. Uh, she tells me, he's been arrested. I'm like, for what? what? What in the world did he do? Well, it turns out that local and federal authorities had raided his home and arrested him for counterfeiting money. And he had the templates and everything was, was counterfeiting U.S. currency. Whole nine yards. I would have never guessed it based on his outward appearance. I had met him. It just it didn't square to me with what I had seen. We had, we had lived in Miami where we thought we were pretty street smart to how people, you know, we lived there for, you know, seven years and it's all kinds of crazy stuff. But that's the thing with people, isn't it? All people. Us people. 
the outside, what everyone sees isn't always a good indication, is it, of what's really going on inside, what's going on in the heart. See, God sees the heart, doesn't he? He sees the motives. He sees those things that nobody else sees, that no one else knows about, even before the FBI knows about it. God knows about it. But there's something else here in regards to counterfeiting currency that's relevant to our text this morning. See, this man, and I, and I hope and pray that he's come to find Christ. I really do. Hope, he, hope that he's come to know the Lord. But he knew he was counterfeiting money, didn't he? I mean, he knew that. He had worked on figuring out how to do it and put it in the, you know, he knew he was counterfeiting, counterfeiting money, but someone that received the money wouldn't necessarily know it was counterfeit when they receive it. They might not even know how to check for it. They might, even not, not, they might not even know they should check and see if it was counterfeit. When, uh, when we lived in South Florida, back in my college years, I worked in the restaurant business. I bartended my way through school before I came to know the Lord. And, and we, we were instructed, matter of fact, we even had workshops where we had to check for counterfeit money all the time. We had that little, you know, little pens that you kind of highlight on there to make sure it wasn't, it wasn't uh, fake. And uh, specifically, we always checked $1,500 bills. It was a hot, Miami, of course, was a hotbed of organized crime, uh, the drug dealing, all of the culture that was there, and so you, you would get counterfeit money. It absolutely existed, and we sometimes had to say, this isn't genuine. If it wasn't genuine, they didn't get to buy anything with it. It didn't matter if they had received it thinking it was genuine. It wasn't genuine, and now it was worthless. But what you have... Those of you that you have in, in this world, you have people that are purposely and carefully counterfeiting things. And they know it's fake. But then you have people that are ignorantly receiving it and they don't know it's fake. And so it is with religion and a right standing with God. As Jesus firmly points out here, there are those that are purposeful and are willfully perpetrating a fraud and they're doing it for their own gain, but people receiving this fraudulent religion are unwittingly receiving it. In many cases, they don't know. They thought this was the real thing. And it's a counterfeit. And it's worthless. Imagine buying a $500 valuable antique only to go on Antique Roadshow and they tell you, this is a fake. It's one thing if you got it for free or for two bucks at the yard sale, but if you spend 500 bucks for it and then you're on Antique Roadshow and some expert you know, pulls his glasses down and says, I'm sorry to tell you this. This isn't even porcelain. What? counterfeit. Well-crafted, well-designed, but it's a replica. It's not the real thing. And this is what Jesus is saying in verse 52. Look at verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, 
You've taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter in yourselves, and those who were entering, you hindered them also. See, these who have rejected the true, they've rejected the genuine. They've rejected a righteous standing before God. They've not only created for themselves an imitation, but they're selling that imitation to other people. And they're having great success to a very vulnerable buying public. And here's the question. What are we holding in our hands and hearts? What are we holding? What are our neighbors, extended family and coworkers, what are they holding? What's in, what's in their hands? What is the average American churchgoer holding on to? What are those in London and Delhi and Cairo and Tokyo and Jerusalem and Rio de Janeiro and Istanbul and the rest of the world, what are they holding on to? What is it that they're holding on to? Is it the authentic, blood-bought relationship with Jesus Christ and His righteousness? His righteousness. Or is it the exterior of man-made religion? Works, systems, things that, get this, things that feel like they're valuable when in fact they're not. They're eternally, not just worthless now, worse than that, they're eternally worthless. Now we can be assured that Jesus wants nobody to sell, buy, or be forced into religion. Amen? You can be assured Jesus doesn't want anyone to sell it, buy it, or force anyone into religion. He died and rose to freely give salvation, didn't he? He gives life. And he gives the purity that resides on the inside, which is the evidence and proof of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I want us to look briefly at three things that are both characteristics of the true believer, but they're also cautionary warnings of deception for all of us. Three things we'll look at in brief this morning, devotion, desires, and determination. Devotion, desires, and determination. You look at devotion here, Jesus comes into this house, and these guys are really devoted. I mean, if there's anything that the law should, should really mandate on the exterior, they're keeping it. The way they dress, ceremonial things, and Jesus comes in and he, and he sees and they, and they end up you know, looking at him because he's not washed his hands before the meal. In a larger sense, when you think about, well, these guys are really religious. So it's obvious that they practice Judaism to the nth degree, at least on the outside. But in a larger sense, everyone's religious. Yes, I, I, I mean everyone. Even the atheist is religious. Everyone is religious. Don't let anyone tell you they're not religious. They are religious. People either have their own custom-created religion. In other words, it's the religion of one. They've created exactly the religion that they follow. They're the priest. They're the ruler of their religion. They're over the whole thing. So they are religious, whether they admit it or not, or whether they know it or not. 
or they follow someone else's. They can look completely non-religious in the most common sense, but everyone is religious in the sense of uh, the fact that they are practicing something that they will live their life by. The other option, other than following someone else's religion and creating your own, because you can follow someone else's or you can create your own, but there is another option to creating one's own religion and following the world's great religions. There's another option, and that's to accept the only true option, and that's Jesus Christ sent by the Father. Because we don't create God's religion, do we? And it wasn't created by man. So it wasn't one of the systems created by man. This was sent by the Father for relationship. It's kind of like buying a house or building a house. You ever gone through that decision process? Do we buy or do we build? In each case, whether you buy or build, you're going to spend your money and your resources, and you're going to be the one that picks out the house. Whether you pick out the one you buy or pick out the one you build, you're spending your resource and you're picking out. But with Christ, it's like inheriting a house. Isn't that great? With Christ, it's like inheriting a house, and not just any house, a magnificent one that's more perfect than you could have even dreamed of or I could have dreamed of. And you don't build it, you don't buy it, you don't design it, you receive it. Isn't that great? The house of salvation is not our, are we going to build it or buy it? Are we going to say yes and receive it? But you could reject it, couldn't you? You could say, thanks for this beautiful house that I've inherited. I don't want it. Doesn't seem to make sense. Seems illogical, but choosing health is really illogical too, isn't it? Doesn't seem to make any sense that anyone chooses to spend eternity away from God. And yet millions will. You can say you don't want it. Say, hey, I, I don't want it. Just give it to someone else. I'm happy with the house that we have, and I'm a self-made man. I just want the one I want to build or buy. Don't want it. And this was the case with the Pharisees and scribes. And this is the case with the world's religious aristocracy. They are the builders and maintainers of the religious system. This is who Jesus is confronting. He's confronting the builders and maintainers of the world's religious systems and the demonic forces behind it. And you can see that he is speaking very directly, isn't he? From a religious system, an infrastructure perspective, they've built themselves a religious mansion, complete with greetings in the marketplace, well thought of, Power, position, prestige, they've built themselves a religious mansion to live in. So receiving the house of God coming down out of heaven, which came not, Jesus didn't come down in royalty, he came down what? In humility. This was, this was not attractive to them. You're walking around in dusty sandals, lower than low, we're not interested. He came down in humility. In bodily form. So the person of Christ just did not attract them. They wanted someone with pomp and circumstance. He didn't bring that. He brought humility and lowliness. You see, they've convinced themselves 
that what they've constructed and now they operate it is better and more impressive than anything that Jesus has to offer. They couldn't be more wrong, could they? And yet they think they're right. Or at least they hope they're right. Interestingly, Jesus uses this same construction metaphor regarding man-made religion and man-made religious attempts. He quotes from, uh, he quotes from Psalm 118, 22, uh, and this passage that he quotes in Psalm 118, 22 is actually used five times in the New Testament. It's used once in Luke. We'll get to that in a later chapter. It's not in this text. But this is what he says in Matthew 21, 42. And again, he's quoting from Psalm 118, 22, and it is used five times in the New Testament. He says this, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus said, Do you not understand? The stone you're rejecting, which would be him, will become the chief cornerstone. In the case of the Jewish religious leaders, they actually have all the right materials. Let me move this for a second. Who knows what could happen? Lewis Neely, I might throw something. I don't know. They have all the right materials. They're actually working with the Scriptures. They're working with the Tanakh, the Old Testament. They're working with the Word of God. They have the right building materials, the bricks, mortar, if you will, right stuff. And what they have in their hands is the very word that speaks to the Messiah who would come and is now in their midst. But the problem is, even though they have the right materials, they're rejecting the one piece of material that will help the entire building stand. They're rejecting the one piece that makes the entire building stand. And worse than that, they're rejecting the one piece that will allow them to stand in the day of judgment. They're fully devoted to things that come from God, but they're not interested in worship to God. Does that make sense? They're fully devoted to the things that come from God, even blessings they've received, the word that they read, that they've memorized and impress everyone in the community because they know entire passages of Scripture, and yet they don't worship God. They don't know him personally. This is the true worship that Jesus mentions in John chapter 4. The kind of worship that reveals, this is the kind of worship, when you really worship God in spirit and in truth, this is the kind of worship that reveals your own depravity, my own depravity, our own dirt. The one that brings us to humility, brings us to repentance, and really brings an inward change. But because they reject the true nature of God, what is the true nature of God? Well, Jesus speaks of some of the things here. You pass on love and justice. In another passage, uh, in the other Gospels, we see that that's expanded. It includes justice and mercy and faith and love. These are the things that are the, that are the heart of God. They're laser-focused, though, on the outward things that allow them to do what? Well, they allow them to ease their own conscience, because they have outward works. When you have outward works, you can kind of, I must not be so bad. I must be pretty good. 
I mean, who else is out here doing this good stuff? I mean, there's not many people like, as near as holy as me. Look how clean my hands are. As if they're doing something holy. While at the same time, they do all those things and they're held in high esteem by the community as the religious leaders. If anyone's holy, it's these guys. Notice, though, that with the religious, with those that are religious, they're still troubled. Deep down, they're still troubled, and they don't know what to do with Jesus. You can see it right here. Deep down, on the outside, clean hands, perfectly clean garments, everyone bowing to the, oh, yeah, here comes the the priesthood, here comes the religious leaders, here comes the Pharisees, here comes the scribes. These guys know the law. These guys got it all together. But deep down, they're troubled, and they don't know what to do with Jesus Christ. Do we accuse them of being satanic? They tried that earlier in the chapter. He's from Beelzebub. They tried that. That didn't work. Because he flipped the tables back and said, then who are you casting out demons by? All right, back to the drawing board. Let's try a different approach. How about we invite him to dinner? Okay, let's invite him to dinner. Maybe he'll finally find out what great guys we really are. Maybe he'll be impressed with us when he sees how we wash our hands and we do all these great things. And we, he'll be, finally, he'll realize, you guys are, what was I thinking? You guys really are righteous and holy. Or as Nicodemus who came in the night in John chapter 3, one of the Sanhedrin, uh, do they admit that nobody but God can do these things? Do they finally admit nobody but God can do these things? Heal people, cast out demons, heal the blind. But I believe these men, I believe especially these who have attained such a high place of honor, I believe they're in a deep struggle. Even right here in the text, I believe they're in a very deep struggle between what they see and what they want to see. They want to see God condone where they're at. What they see is he's not. And this is people we meet all the time. This used to be us, some of us. Before I got saved, there was what I could see clearly, and I would tell myself, I'm not seeing that, I'm not seeing that, I'm not seeing that, so I'll just go and do what I'm doing. They can see it, and the struggle is there. And Jesus doesn't make it any easier on them in this decision process they're wrestling with, does he? He does not make it easier for them. He makes it even harder. He accepts their invitation to a meal. You invite me to dinner? I'm coming. He accepts the invitation. Do you think he forgot to wash his hands? Do you think he didn't know that they all were going to wash their hands? He didn't know about this whole ritual? Of course he did. Purposely didn't wash his hands. He was setting up the discussion. You invited me, I'm coming. But you know what? Even as, even as Jesus will come in harshness, he's still coming in love. The process, what was taking place when he comes in, they all wash and, and Jesus doesn't. The process involved, uh, what they would do is you take your hands and you put the fingers up in the air. They pour a jar of water 
over the hands this way. So first you'd start with the hands in this manner. It'd be over a bowl. You'd pour the water over the hands with the fingers pointed up. Then it would drip off. And if it dripped off the wrist, you were free to move to the next step, which is then to turn them this way, and then the water would wash down. They go through this process. It's a ceremonial cleansing. It was never mentioned or mandated in the law for this. This was all man-created. But it had become a standard among the religious leaders, and they would teach that it cleansed them from perhaps touching anything impure. Well, by the way, the last thing they would do after you, after you kind of let it drip through there, uh, start this way, then down, then they would take their fist and clean each side of the hand. That looks really holy, doesn't it? And everyone around him say, well, these guys, look at them. The pillars of the community. None of it written in the law, but more importantly, none of it claims cleanse their hearts. This never did anything on the inside, did it? It was an exterior thing. And the Pharisees and religiously, they imposed this on everybody. And they appeared so holy and committed to purity and cleanliness. And these things might impress and fool people, but they don't fool God. And Jesus was unimpressed. And he said, I'm not washing my hands because I'm clean on the inside. And there's no law. And I know the law as well as you guys do. I wrote it. And there is no law that says that this has to be done. I'm free to pick up the food with dirty hands. There's not a law that says I can't. By the way, none of them try to challenge them on the law. You notice that? None of them try to say, it is written. They don't say it's written because it's not written. It was the traditions of men. And we see the things that they're devoted to. But let's look at the uh, desires that Jesus exposed. If you're taking notes, let's look under desires here. He goes on to say, you wash the outside cup, but the inward part is full of greed and wickedness. He talks about them being so foolish and all the things that they were really focused on. You love the best seats at the synagogues and the marketplace. He says, you're like graves which are not seen, which men walk over. In other words, he's saying, your lives are not what they appear. People think they see you for what you are, but they're not. They have no clue how you really are, but I do. I'm sitting in your house right now, and I'm reading each of your thoughts. What a, what a frightening thing if you're them, right? <laughs> Jesus is sitting in the house. You invited him. You already know that he's exposed your lawlessness. Now he's looking inside your hearts, and he knows what you're thinking. And Jesus publicly and forcefully pulls back the curtain on these men's real character and the thoughts and intents of their heart. Dr. David Stern, he's a Jewish believer in Christ, Wrote the Jewish commentary on the New Testament. Fantastic book if you don't have it. Uh, kind of his comments on the, on, the, on the Bible from a Hebrew and Jewish perspective. But he says this. He says, nowhere, these are powerful words he writes. He says, nowhere is it clearer that the image of a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, falls short of reality. The repeated slashing litany angers Jews, mystifies Gentiles, and embarrasses Christians. Was he unloving towards them? Sometimes love has to be tough. That's his comments. And I agree with him. I'm not embarrassed of Jesus' character because Jesus is right and righteous and holy. 
But if you don't understand who Jesus is, you might say, oh, I can't believe he would talk like that to them. Wouldn't he be more compassionate? Well, Jesus has been very compassionate for a long period of time to these men. But they're doing this. And sometimes, you know, you, if, uh, if you were out in the woods and you love animal life, you truly don't want to shoot the bear. Try and shoot it off. But if it comes and it finally is within uh, five feet of you and it's coming, you might want to use the weapon finally. Right? <laughs> and in a, in a similar sense, Jesus is finally using very direct words to get their attention. Because he doesn't want them to go to hell. He doesn't want them to stay in this self-deception that they're in. We might not be able to trust our own words, but we can trust the words of Jesus. We'll, we'll use the wrong words sometimes. I use the wrong words from the pulpit plenty of times. Go back later and say, why did I say that? You're probably saying, why did he say that? My wife, why did he say that? No. But his harsh words were meant to turn these men from a hell they were headed to. They didn't listen to the compassionate word. They didn't listen to the soft word. They didn't listen to all the other ways that Jesus had come among them. He wanted them to repent and humble themselves. In 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He'll always resist pride, but he'll give grace to the humility. And Jesus comes to give life. He comes first. He comes first to everyone as a gentle missionary, as a physician as the Lamb of God. But if one rejects, if one mocks, if one distorts as Lee's leaders were doing, they were distorting his ministry, even trying to turn everyone against Jesus. Furthermore, they were leading people astray. And they'll receive the full rebuke of God from a prophet. Turn with me real quick to Jeremiah chapter 33. Look at this in the Old Testament. What we see Jesus doing is exactly the things that we see the prophets in the Old Testament and what God gave to the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus is doing. Um, if a person won't obey the simplicity of the law, then you have a law officer impose the simplicity of the law. True? And God comes to them gently, but this is what he says in Jeremiah chapter 23. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Woe. Same word as, as used in, woe to them. To God coming directly against them. He goes on in verse 4, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. It incensed Jesus when there would be people that would represent God that were actually distorting and leading people to hell. But Jesus said, I will put shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking. Verse 5, I love, now Jesus is the great shepherd, and he's the one that's going to come on the scene as we see him on the scene in Luke 11. But behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment 
and righteousness in the earth. His days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Verse 11, for both prophet and priest are profane, yes, my house, in my house I have found their wickedness. This is exposing exactly who the religious leaders were in his house. They were representing the law. They were representing God's word, but they were found and exposed in wickedness. But God was going to send a righteous one among them, who is Jesus himself. Back to our text. Jesus comes to them as a prophet. He comes to them directly. And these men, as they see Jesus come among them, their outward show, it's completely opposite of the inward mess, isn't it? He's a shepherd that can see the real heart. He sees the inward mess. He knows that they are the very ones that Jeremiah 23 is speaking of. They're living the essence of hypocrisy. They didn't love God. They loved what the name of God. Remember, the name Yahweh is revered among all the Jewish people. The name of God was actually a platform for them. God hates when we use his name. Remember what Jesus did to the market uh, when people turned the temple into a marketplace? Using the temple as a place to use, it, use God's name for their own gain Jesus flipped the tables, ends up taking a whip and driving them out. But these men had used the name of God and used uh, the, the Jewish faith to afford the lifestyle that they now live. They had, the pe- they had all the perks of position and prestige. And Jesus makes clear that even those things that they were doing which actually were in the law, such as tithing, that was in the law, probably their attendance uh, you know, at, at, on the Sabbath, all of these things, those things were in the law, but Jesus makes it clear that those things were of little value, no value to them, because they didn't have any redemptive value. It, dis- it, wasn't, it wasn't any inward change. I've met people that I know, based on what I see over their lifetime, I'm like, I'm not even sure this person's saved. But just because a person tithes, I've met people that that money, they have so much of it that giving a tithe is no big deal. So if they can stroke a check to God, they think God's happy. By the way, God doesn't need your money. He has a lot of it. It's paper to him. Now, does the, does the scriptures talk about it? Of course it does. We're going to be next three Wednesdays. I'm going to be doing a series on finances, faith, and freedom. God has a lot to say about these things. But what I'm, my point is, There's people that can give financially, they can go to church, they can do these things, but those are just ritualistic if it's not from the heart, if it's not from a heart change. And he also makes the case that the law related to the heart supersedes any ceremonial thing anyway. Justice, love, those things are at a higher level than tithing your herbs, your mint, all of those things. Many people are involved... uh, in religious rituals and outward displays that look like righteousness and to some extent feel like righteousness. That's why people do them, because they have a, there's a feeling that I, 
I feel like I'm good with God now. I just put a check in the box. You and me, we're in good place, right? I just slapped a bumper sticker on the car. I'm in good shape now. I mean, who else would do that? I mean, really, this is a big, bold step I just did. I just put a bumper sticker. It's got a fish on there. Don't want to read the word at all, but I put the fish there. Everything's going to be fine now, right, Lord? Outward acts with no inward impact. Outward acts. The impact, the inside has to drive the outside, not the way or other way around. The inward heart. It's how someone can attend church for years and years and, and, and have no heart for people that are lost. No prayer for those that are lost. No uh, reaching out. No, hey, I want to tell you about what God did for me. Christian, this is a warning to the Pharisees and the scribes for certain. But it's also a warning to us too, isn't it? I mean, it's speaking to us too. The Lord doesn't want us to have an outward exterior. A.W. Tozer said, I declare without equivocation that the church of Jesus Christ was never intended to be a religious theater. And we have enough problems that people already call us hypocrites, right? Without giving them more ammunition to live by the Spirit. That's what the Lord is inside. Jesus is looking inside. You know, we, we can get some of the ceremonial things wrong. A person could get saved somewhere in the world and not know anything about some of the things. That, they might not even know that they are supposed to attend church and the gathering of believers, but they already could have a heart of a true worshiper to God immediately. Missionaries have found this plenty of time. That before they've even told people that have gotten soundly saved what they should do, they're already doing it. They're like, that's in the Bible? I didn't even know that. I just felt I should start doing this. I should, I should start loving my wife instead of verbally assaulting her. It's God makes that change. And if that change isn't there, Paul has to say, is there been a change? Has there been a change? On the inside. We can have Bibles and church services and Bible studies and devotions, but if the spirit of the living God isn't flowing out of our lives and our inward thoughts and our heart doesn't start to look more and more like Jesus. I'm not saying perfection. By no means. I'm saying over time we become more and more like Christ and something's wrong. We're no different than the scribes and the Pharisees who Jesus absolutely reproaches. Let's close looking at this determination. What do I mean by that? Well, from a determination standpoint, these wicked men, these wicked religious men that Jesus encounters, they were determined. They were determined to keep people loaded down and in bondage. They wanted them in bondage. They even wanted them in things that they were themselves not even doing. You know, they would stone someone for adultery, right? But they themselves were full of adultery. And they wouldn't even lose a wink of sleep over it. If they had really, if they really had the heart of God, they would have been focused on setting people free. Amen? Setting people free to worship, free to serve the Lord, free to serve God with joy and gladness. They didn't want anyone joy and gladness. They wanted everyone in misery buckling under them. 
Satan loves religion, by the way. Y'all know that? Satan. Religion's his best work. It's better than the nightclubs. It's better than all the fun out there. He has far more people on the planet involved in religion than he does in pagan, just kind of hedonism. Far more people. Satan loves religion. And Jesus shows us in the text that religion goes all the way back to Cain. He doesn't mention Cain. He mentions his brother Abel. He mentions the blood of Abel. Who killed Abel? Cain. They were both religious. Cain brought... He brought stuff to God too. They both went to church together. Cain and Abel both brought offerings to the Lord. Cain brought something that was a fraud. Abel brought something that God says, that I want. Abel brought his heart. Cain brought a washbowl for the hands. Even said the famous words, am I my brother's keeper? Whereas the true Christian, we are our brother's keeper. True? We are supposed to love and care for each other so much that the world can't miss it. That the world would say, you guys actually love each other in a way that's foreign to me. Tell me where this came from. But Cain wasn't like that. He was religious. He had his offering. He inwardly was full of murderous thoughts. He had all kinds of issues with his own brother. And he had a false religion, and Satan has been perpetrating false religion ever since. And false religion has been killing the saints of true Christians ever since as well. And that's what Jesus said. From the blood of the beginning all the way to the end. And ultimately, whose blood will be the one that they'll spill next? Jesus himself. Satan loves religion as long as people don't find the real one. He'll give you lots of religion. He gave the, and, and if you really want to help perpetrate his religion, he'll elevate you to a high place so you can be one of the kingpins, like these guys. Moses, whom they revered, had brought their forefathers out of bondage. But they and their fathers had built an intricate system of works, law, and guilt to enslave the people into religious tyranny. That's what they had built. And Jesus was there to shatter it and set those very people free. And by the way, the world's major religious systems, they're all built on a hierarchical uh, kind of uh, approach that amasses power and sometimes it amasses great wealth and a long line of people hoping that they've done enough to get to paradise. Right? And they can manipulate young men to become murderers. You've got imams convincing people that they are going to be well-received by Allah. They're not going to be received by Allah. They're not even going to meet Allah. They die in their sins. They will just meet the darkness and wrath of God. And yet, some of them truly believe these things because someone has lied to them that knows they're lying. And at all the religious systems, we have this. Even in the American church, we have people that are pandering and really manipulating people. I call them religious Ponzi schemes. Religious Ponzi schemes, big ones. And they're run by people who see people as props for personal gain. It's these guys. These leaders are self-willed in their rejection of God, and they're determined to pass their deception on to others. That's what Jesus is saying. You took away the key to knowledge, and you hindered other people from even knowing where to go. Whatever truth they were given, they rejected it. 
They're not content with their own production of counterfeit religious currency, but they conceive hundreds, or they, they convince, they convince hundreds and thousands and even millions to purchase a counterfeit. And people do. Second Peter speaks to them as well, Second Peter 2, 2 through 3. Listen to what Peter writes. He said, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness, their covetousness. They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Peter speaking just as harshly as Jesus said, look, these guys have religious exterior, but they are deceptive and covetousness, and they are deceiving millions around the world under Christianity, under Judaism, under Catholicism, under Hinduism, under Buddhism, under Islam, all of it. And some of them actually know each other pretty well and are all in it together at certain levels. But before judgment comes, they're determined to keep their insulated system before the judgment comes, eventually judgment comes. It came in the Old Testament. It came in Jesus' time. It'll come again. Before the judgment comes, they're determined to keep that insulated system as if they can, but they try. Eventually, they become so wicked that they have to kill the prophets, which is what they did in the Old Testament. And eventually, Jesus will become such a problem that what will they eventually do? Verse 54, they'll lie in wait trying to figure out how they can kill him. That, what, what was, as long as you don't rock the boat, they might not have had to move to murder. But Jesus was severely rocking the boat, severely penetrating their false facade. By the way, quite a warning and a revelation, verse 51. Look at verse 51. This is quite a warning and revelation. There's some depth here. I, want you to, I don't want you to miss this. Verse 51 and 52. Uh, sorry, Exodus 50 and 51. Because he says twice. He says twice that the blood of all the prophets will be required of this generation. He says it two times. This generation, verse 51 and 50. What is he saying? The generation that was alive at that time if you were someone that, let's say you were 35 at that time, um, and you lived another 35, 40 years, that generation was going to see Jerusalem slaughtered and ground into powder. We talked about this Wednesday night. Those of you that were here, and we showed what the old, oh, the temple was magnificent, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Jesus, when he tells the disciples, this is why the disciples, they could not believe what he was saying. The temple that was so magnificent, he said, it's going to be destroyed. It, not one stone will be left standing upon another that will be turned upside down. And that would be like, in our lifetime, a prophet telling you, it would be like Jesus telling you, you see the White House and the Capitol building and the Supreme Court? It will not be there in this generation. Gone. And if you said, I don't believe that, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if Jesus were to say that, and you say, I, well, that's pretty heavy, that would mean World War III must have started. And Jesus would say, something like that. See, so what, what was going to happen in Jerusalem is all the blood of the prophets was going to come, that bill was going to be due in their generation. 
Their generation, the bill will have to be paid. And they don't realize that they're going to first kill Jesus, he's going to raise from the dead, and then 70 AD, Titus, the Roman emperor, was going to level the city to the point that blood would run down the streets and put out fireplaces. And people would eat their own children. And he's, They don't know what's coming. They, when he's saying judgment's coming in this generation, he meant judgment's coming in this generation. And he says all the way back to Abel, Jerusalem's going to pay a huge bill. And they don't know what he's talking about. And neither did anyone else there until it would happen later. Then the then people would say, wow, he really did mean that generation. But that was just a foreshadowing of the final judgment that would be coming. But all the blood would be required of that generation. And Jesus was saying, and you guys contributed to the killing. And they're like, we weren't there. It's like, yeah, but you have the same hearts of those that killed Zechariah. You have the same hearts of those that killed Abel. Same hearts. False, rejecting the true. But what about us, Christian? What about us? Come to a close. Will we live a counterfeit Christianity? Or will we be transformed by the inside, by the grace of Jesus Christ? What about us? We don't always look at the Pharisees and everything. We want to always apply it to ourselves. Will we try and live by works? Or we ask God humbly to help us change? Will we humble ourselves where the Holy Spirit identifies hypocrisy in our lives? And guess what? He will identify some hypocrisy in our lives, won't he? If you're breathing, he'll identify it. All of us. But, Will we receive his grace to actually walk in true righteousness instead of just religiosity? True righteousness. Church, let's be devoted to Christ and not devoted to church. When we're devoted to Christ, all the other right devotions will follow anyway. Amen? When we're devoted to Christ, you won't have to make sure you're devoted to works. The Spirit of the living God will work through us. Titus 3.5, I'll close with this verse. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that You didn't come to put us in religious tyranny, but you came and sent your son to set us free. Free to worship, free to love you, free to say no to sin, which we previously couldn't say no to. We thank you, Lord, you've given us the power over darkness. And Lord, this passage, although you speak very firmly and directly, is all in love because you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would show us, Lord, where there's hypocrisy in our own life, where there is things that you want to cleanse. And Lord, we'll just simply ask for your forgiveness and walk in that newness of life which you've promised. But I want to ask before we close, if there's anyone here that 
you've never been saved. You've never had Jesus cleanse you from your sins. You've never asked Him to be your Lord and Savior. You've never received the free gift of salvation, inherited the mansion of salvation, and you're still trying to build or buy your own salvation, which there is none. It's only the free gift through salvation of Jesus Christ. If there's anyone, just stand right where you're at. Just stand right where you're at. Anyone at all? We'll, you stand and we'll pray with you. Anyone else? Just want to give your heart and life to Jesus. Say, Lord, I want to receive the free gift of living water, not the fake fraud thing that the Pharisees were trying to sell the people, but the real thing that comes from heaven, life-changing, life-giving. I'm going to pray with this one who's standing. If anyone decides that they want to join them, it's not too late. God is the God of 11th hours and even 23rd hours. And I'm going to pray you can just pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you, Lord, that you love me with an everlasting love. Cleanse me from my sin. Lord, I want to live for you and live with you for all eternity. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I decide to follow you this day to take up my cross and be your disciple. Thank you for grace. I could never work for this, never earn it, but I simply receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.